morning, folks. It's time for Democratic Perspective, brought to you by the Verde Valley Independent Democrats, a weekly talk show about the crucial political issues facing the Verde Valley, Sedona, Northern Arizona, and the nation at large. Join us for a stimulating, thought-provoking discussion. You'll get the facts as we focus on the challenges facing everyone. Good morning, folks. Steve Williamson here. Welcome to Democratic Perspective. We're talking with Gary LeMaster, who's the webmaster of Democratic Perspective. And um, the, um, what would you call him? He's uh, the uh, eminent degree, the, the great researcher that we, we've used that we, for many years. And for, for a long time, he was here in, in um, Arizona, and I could see him physically. But today, he's calling in and co-hosting the show from Minnesota. We're going to see how this works. Gary, are you there? I am. Good morning, everyone. And Gary has a has has his own blog, which I guess you, it's in temporary suspension since you you moved from rural Minnesota to to St. Paul. I just started working on it again, so I have something new up uh, this week. So. I, and what's the blog called? Why don't you tell folks? Uh, Lemaster's Corner. It's a, a really original name, but um, it's it's basically about uh, my take on uh, politics and and what I find in my. Seemingly, you know, daily research. It's it's not called the master cornered, but cornered. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> it, it could be when I was in rural Minnesota, it, it felt that way. <laughs> we have, yeah, I guess rural Minnesota, and this is something we should talk. We our guest today is Randy Perez, who's sort of Gary will introduce him, but he's the an organizer par excellence who helped to defeat uh, Russell Pierce, who was 10 years ago. I noticed that when uh, we went back, because we've interviewed Randy before, we interviewed Randy back, uh, Gary back in uh, uh, 2012, and the show was only 30 minutes long then. It's now 45 minutes long. So I I, re- I warned both these guys that they got to talk for 45 minutes. So, uh, Randy Perez, are you there? I am. Let me let me give him a, a little bit of an introduction, Good. if I may. Um, Randy is uh, is an activist, uh, Harvard educated, an organizer, and now an author. I you know maybe uh, you've authored a book before, uh, Randy, but uh, he's got a book out called Dignity by Fire: Dismantling Arizona's Anti-Immigrant Machine, and it's it's a great book detailing the. The uh, the takedown of Russell Pierce uh, uh, from his position as uh, Arizona Senate President. Um, Randy has a, a long history of working for uh, for people that are disadvantaged, and uh, he even spent some time in Calcutta working for Mother Teresa. So I'd like to start by asking, what what was that like? <laughs> oh, thank you, thank you all for inviting me to be on the show, and I just. Oh, I always forget to do this, but if anyone, after hearing about the book, wants to get it, you can just go to DignityByFire.com, and you can see all the details there. But in terms of the experience with India, it was unlike anything I ever experienced. Part of my draw was that she was also a Nobel Prize winner, so I wanted to learn more about Gandhi. I wanted to learn about Mother Teresa, and she was actually alive then, um, back in 1994, and so I was able to you know, kind of observe their model of how they dealt with change, how they dealt with uh, poverty and, and dealt with issues on a direct service type of model. So I found it very engaging, but also I didn't know people still had leprosy. We actually went to a leper colony 
um, there when I was in, in, in Calcutta. So it was just a, just a life-changing experience. And, uh, I can well imagine. Go ahead, Gary. Um, I, I can well imagine it, uh, it, it had to be a, an incredible experience. Um, turning to, to your book, uh, uh, maybe you can explain. Uh, I was struck by your, your uh, explanation in the book about your choice of uh, the word dignity for the title. Do you want to go into that? Yeah, because, I mean, dignity, it really speaks to what's at the heart of all of us about, you know, how we treat other people, how we expect to be treated. It's a certain type of civility that should be part of our discourse. And and, and somehow we lost that. And the whole fire comes from the, uh, it's, it's metaphorically comes from, you know, Dr. King's speech when he talked about there's a certain kind of fire. This is on the eve of his assassination. He was talking about there's a certain type of fire that no water could put out. And so I, I put those two together because at the time, you know, Bull Connor was hosing down children who were marching for the rights to segregation, and he said, you know, that, that type of water you know, it won't do anything to, to, to quelch or to put out the type of fire we're talking about. This, that it burns in each and every one of us. And so part of the challenge is to organize is to be able to tap into that fire, because each of us have it, a special feeling, a special sense of justice, a special sense of what right and wrong, and, and to honor that dignity in other people. And so when you connect the fire with the dignity, you can make good things happen. I've always, always thought that, that dignity and respect are, are two things that are uh, as important to people, maybe more important than food and water. That, uh, yeah, and they're very aspirational tries. because any time I work with on the unions and with workers, they always want to about dignity and respect, right? So we're always striving for that. It's never a given. It's never a constant. It's something that you have to fight for and to, and to maintain. There has to be a level of certain sense of accountability between those who are the bosses and those who are the workers. I'd like to get in a question here. Is Randy? Is how did you come to Arizona, and how did you get into the fight that I guess that the book focuses on against Russell Pierce, taking folks back ten years, uh, twelve years, really? Uh, Russell uh, Pierce was uh, the, the, probably the dominant Republican in uh, in Arizona. He was the, the chairman of the the, the state Senate. Uh, Republicans, and um, how did you take this this fact on? And, and I think that uh, SB 1070, we should remind folks, was kind of a predecessor to the anti-immigrant uh, stuff that we see today nationwide, uh, perpetrated largely uh, or significantly by uh, Donald Trump. How did you get into that fight? Yeah, you know, SB 1070 was the precursor to all the anti-immigrant. You know, we, we became ground zero in that fight against anti-immigrant legislation laws. And so what brought me originally to Arizona, I was here from, like, just to give a sense of perspective, from 2001 to 2002, for a couple of years as a state director for the National AFL-CIO. And during that time period, didn't know it, never heard of Russell Pierce, never heard of Sheriff Arpaio. So I leave, I go back to California in 2002, 2003, or 2004, and then, and then I returned because I went through a divorce. My ex-wife wanted to move back to Arizona, and so I, you know, I consented. And then I was trying to live in Sacramento at the same time, raise two daughters, which I couldn't do because obviously you can't do that from far. So I made a decision to resign from the work I was doing at the Corona Capital on Latino issues and voter engagement, and then to relocate and start all over again in Arizona. So that's what brought me back. This is 2007. But by then, so much had changed because Sheriff Arpaio now was into doing these raids, these drive-by raids and targeting 
uh, undocumented workers and going after immigrants as if they're like the worst criminals in the world. And so I was at that time organizing undocumented residential construction workers in the housing industry, which was before the before the whole market crashed. And a lot of our workers were just talking about how they were fearful of what was taking place of these random raids and stops because they were just trying to make a living and they were being harassed and some were being detained and then incarcerated uh, and then deported. And that got me in the fight against Sheriff Arpaio. And then as we you know, went on, you know, it started escalating because other politicians started seeing it. And then Russell Pierce was doing anti-immigrant stuff in 2001 and 2002 as a state rep. It didn't go anywhere because it was just too extreme. And his own Republican um, colleagues would stop things from getting out of hand when they came to anti-immigrant legislation in the early 2000s. But that started to change as people started to see that, hey, you can get some, you can get some political you know, capital out doing this. And so him and our pile started, you know, tag teaming. And then SB 1070 was in part to help our pile with his raids. We called the show me your papers law, right? The whole, anyone who was reasonable suspicious, you know, you're brown, and then you could be pulled over and detained lawfully. And so that's kind of what got me into the fight. And at that time in 2010, when the law was passed, and then when Brewer signed it, I then ran for U.S. Senate thinking that this was my way of trying to make a change or to kind of create a platform. Because at the time, I was the only Latino candidate for U.S. Senate in the country. In Arizona, SB 1070 just passed. I thought, you know, we could get some traction and do some, you know, try to raise the profile of what was happening here. So unfortunately, it didn't work out. But then when that, when that failed, I was at the time in November after the election, you know, for Democrats who can remember back in 2010, let me just remind people that if you're a Democrat in 2010, November 2010, you know, it was a horrible film. We lost every single statewide race in Arizona. We got decimated at the polls. We just got beat badly. And so most folks coming out of that, you know, we're going into 2011 kind of like, let's just hunker down and wait this out so we can, you know, reload and try to, you know, come back in a year or two in the next election. And I just felt, you know, that wasn't something, once Marshall Pierce was rewarded for his racist behavior, that by becoming Senate president, I just felt that something just shook him. There's no way we could wake this guy up because he, he was in an escalated attack. SB 10 was not the end. It was the beginning of what he wanted to do um, um, legislatively. And we saw that later on in 2011. So that's kind of kind of what got me to that point. But what triggered me to move into the recall itself, and we were fortunate because not every state has a recall provision in their constitution. Arizona is one of the one of many eighteen that do. And I was watching; it was just the, the weekend after the election in twenty ten. Everyone's feeling horrible, and I was watching Sunday Square off, and I just saw Russell Pierce on there. I'm like, why is he on the show? I, I, I didn't think there's anything newsworthy he had done. He just got he was in a very safe Republican seat. There's no news that he got reelected. And at the bottom is the newly elected Senate president, and that just. I was like, there's no way in heck, man, I'm going to allow this guy to just be the head to control the agenda for some 6 million people in Arizona. It's just, I just knew it wasn't going to be the right, I just knew it was going to be nothing but trouble and more problems. And at the time, also, because he, he helped with SB 1070, he helped Jan Brewer, you know, get reelected. People saw him as one of the most powerful politicians in the state. And so that got me researching. The only way we have, we have to remove him now, we can't wait. So the only, only strategy was a recall. Then I started doing some of the research around that. And that was controversial, even with uh, Democrats, progressive Democrats, right? Because they thought you should wait. Oh, no, none of that. They, didn't, they, they just thought that, look, first of all, you're crazy. Number two, it's never been done before. Three, you're going to fail. And when you fail, it's going to be worse for all of us because he's going to be upset. He's going to be, you know, he's going to come after us. And you're going to, you know, we just want to keep our heads down. And here you are taking on one of the most powerful politicians in a very public way. And they didn't want to have anything to do with it. It's hard to imagine what uh, what damage Pierce and Arpaio might have done 
had you not uh, led the recall. Well, absolutely. Um, we got a glimpse. We got a glimpse of that in it was April 2011. As we were out there collecting signatures, Russell Pierce continued to do his extremist things. So he pushed this omnibus immigration bill that went after public schools. That was going to force them to keep, you know, accurate records of every single child that was there, whether documented or undocumented. Housing, you know, some families have citizenship, uh, mixed citizenship status. Some are undocumented, some are, are citizens. Who after emergency room health care, you know, they have to document or before you can give service to someone who's in critical condition or wants help, you have to ask them their status. That was all part of this package. And Russell Pierce forced a vote knowing he wasn't going to win it because he wanted to get those moderate Republicans on record. So then he can go after them later on. And even the, the and, and so, you know, the, a lot of about 60 CEOs stepped forward, you know, it got, got these moderate Republicans to vote it down. But he was, but Pierce was then telegraphing where he was going. Um, he was, he wanted these guys on record. So he, he wanted a, he didn't want it just a veto majority Republican vote in the Senate. He wanted a Tea Party majority. And he did not have a Tea Party majority in 2011. But had he stayed in power, he would have eventually got his Tea Party majority. So you took, took on the strongest nexus, the, 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 where all of this stuff was going through, which was the, with Russell Pierce. I mean, he was right. the focus of it. He was per, proposing legislation, if not writing it all himself, that would have gotten more and more extreme. And SB 2270, uh, if, maybe we should remind people uh, SB what, what SB 70 was exactly, Randy, so that folks, folks who are, are younger might catch on to it. Yeah, SB 1070, right, was, was a law that really targeted the Latino community, especially in the black community, to really almost make it even a law that if you transported someone who was undocumented from one place to another. Um, you know, it, it really gave people, it gave law enforcement the ability, the legal framework to stop someone, even if they thought they were, they looked reasonably suspicious, right? Reasonably suspicious, that's a pretty broad framework, right? So for a lot of folks, especially in law enforcement, if you're interested in cracking down on documents, you can see, you can define that your way you want. And it kind of gave them the legal um, permission to really come after the undocumented community in ways they couldn't do it before. Suspicious would have been somebody that uh, had brown skin, right? Yeah, brown skin. Well, they, again, they, oh, I thought they were doing so. I thought, I thought they were undocumented. They looked like they shouldn't be here. <laughs> it just opens the door, right? Um, versus uh, having a different, more measured approach to dealing with issues that have to deal with those folks who are undocumented. Um. I'm not sure people realize, uh, even uh, long-term uh, residents of Arizona, realize how truly uh, uh, cruel uh, our pile was in this treatment of not only immigrants but everyone. Um, you had a, you had an interesting, or you talked about it in our last show that you were on. You had an interesting uh, encounter with uh, our pile uh, at uh, a county meeting. Uh, do you want to you want to cover that? Too? I've had a couple. Was this the one where I got arrested, or was this the one where yes, I talked? Yes. To you? <laughs> yeah. Prior to the whole recall efforts uh, in 2007, 2000, and 2008, we started ramping up a different campaign because at the time, you know, we had a county in Maricopa with plus 200,000 when it came to voter registration in favor of Republicans. And so I, I just felt as an organizer to come at to come forward with an ant with like a pro-immigrant, you know, pro-immigrant message was not going to work. You had to come out from about fiscal accountability. So we created something called Maricopa Citizens for Safety and Accountability and said, look, what Sheriff Rob Powell is doing, he's wasting taxpayer dollars, right? He's redirecting funds. He's, 
illegally using funds. And so, and, and, and he's not going after the folks who are committing those, who are committing sex crimes against children and elderly. So we had all these things we were using and we were hitting them hard at the board of supervisors and the press was covering it. So it was a good, really good. It was good for us, but bad for him because it was a different type of image for a Republican to be in the news for the wrong reasons about wasting money, millions of dollars, and, and not investigating sex crimes. So we stayed away from the, the immigration stuff and focused on that. And so at some point, we, we had the whole hall packed, and then we were doing this act. We were interrupting the meetings because they wouldn't put us on the agenda because four of the five Bora uh, supervisors were Republican and were either scared of our pile or his allies. And so we interrupted them. So Part of the interruption, they asked me to leave, which I did leave, and I was outside. And eventually, within minutes, you know, a whole bunch of sheriff deputies started surrounding me, saying, "You have to, you have to leave." Normally, you have to leave out this premise. You got to go outside to the sidewalk by the street. And I was like, "Oh no, I'm not going anywhere. I'm staying here because, you know, I knew a little bit about the law about you know public assembly and being outside in a free open space." And so, long story short, they, they, they eventually you know arrested me and then took me in, and I was in jail most of the day. Um, trying to figure out why was I being arrested, but they got me for like, criminal trespass and disorderly conduct. Um, so a pile was again trying to send a message that if you try to act up against me, we're gonna you know, we're gonna arrest you, we're gonna harass you, and do all these things to you. And the fascinating thing about that arrest, this was 2008, mind you, almost two and a half years before we did the recall. I'm about to be arraigned to go before the judge, and the judge says, "Oh, your lawyers in the back of the room. They want you know they want you know, before you get a plea, you should talk to them." And I was like shocked because I, I did not have any lawyer. I was, none of us were planning on being arrested that day. So I go back there and then I meet, uh, I meet two lawyers, Alex Carpio and Chad Snow. And Chad Snow, he was the, you know, the owner of the, of the law firm called Snow and Carpio for workers' compensation, uh, law. He said, Randy, it's nice to meet you. By the way, I was in the audience and when, um, when everything broke out and they started breaking up the meeting, officers came and they put me in the hallway and they arrested me. And then, and then minutes though, you came walking by, uh, you, you came by and you were arrested and they looked at me and said, oh, that's not him. And they let me go. So they thought they did. They, 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 it was like the Keystone cops. I mean, cause Chad and I don't look much like each other, but they arrested him mistakenly thinking he was me. And so, and I say that because Chad Snow eventually became the chairman of citizens of Arizona because he is a Republican. He's a member of the uh, church of Latter-day Saints, a Mormon and a business owner. And that's the type of face we wanted to put out there to be part of leading our effort to take on Russell Pierce in a very um, LDS uh, type of district. So I think that's what you wanted me to hit on, but it was just, it was just all these things happened, right? And, it, and they all kind of played out in the, into our benefit later on. You're lucky you didn't end up in the, our files, Tent City. Um, yeah. I, I uh, really want to get into just briefly, you had to gain, uh, gather about 7,000, more than 7,000 signatures to uh, uh, get a recall of Pierce, which doesn't sound like a, a huge task, but um, it was, you know, in, in reading about it and reconstructing it, it was so complex. Um, and I was so impressed by your plan, uh, how you went about it. Uh, do you want to kind of just talk briefly about what, what you had to do to get that done? Yeah, it was, it was a combination of things. First, before we got started, we made a decision that this was an anti-Pierce campaign on a strategy level, which meant that we weren't going to run any Democrat. The only way we could win, we had to divide the Republican vote and then have the Democrats come in to help deliver the, uh, the, the final blow because it was a very safe red seat. So even if you even if you ran Barack Obama, he would have lost because it's just it was just a dominant red, red seat. So that was the first strategy we decided to make and that make sure everyone was on board. Look, we're going to 
we're going to recall Pierce, but then we're not going to run a Democrat. We have to wait, you know, hopefully get a Republican to challenge him. That, you know, that was the first thing. And the second thing is that we had to not only um, initiate and start collecting signatures, but we also had to raise money so that we can, at the same time we're doing volunteer work, we have a paid operation going. And so we were able to do that. We raised about $10,000 before we even filed. We got $10,000 in commitments before we even filed the paperwork. So in a very, within two weeks, we had things up and running very quickly. And tell us a little bit more about the campaign. First, that's a really good strategy. You know that it's a Republican district. You know it's a, a Mormon or Latter-day Saints district. At least there's a lot of people in there. It's, right. it's Mesa. You know that. And what you did was, what I see you did, is that you did what was possible rather than what would be what was ideal. I mean, right. the ideal thing would be run a progressive Democrat and defeat Pierce. That would be ideal. Yeah. But you were practical. You and you were strategic in your thinking, and you and you were honest about what the district was. You didn't try to convince yourself that it was more uh, democratic than it was because it was only what twenty two percent democratic or something like that. Well, and the previous guy who ran a campaign, Andrew Sherwood, he lost by twenty points. Right. So it was it was it was just. Trying, like you're saying, being strategic, being smart about the strategy, and then wanting to win because the goal was to remove Pierce. It wasn't about winning back the legislature, right? Which I think the Democrats make mistakes on things. I think that's all. Yeah, that's what you have to do to, to move on an agenda, but it's not necessarily so. There's different ways you can do things to accomplish what you want to accomplish. And so the re- and so once you make that decision, then of course I needed other allies to do that. I need to get someone like Ken Chapman, who was at the time the executive director of the Maricopa County Democratic Party, because I know he, I would need him to help me make sure that no Democrat did run. I need, so I need him to help me identify some of the activist Democrats who were there who had never been spoken to because it's always been a safe red seat to then activate them and get them engaged, right? And so we had a universe of some close to 40,000 households of voters uh, who are either Democrat or independent, right? So we could get, so it became clear early on just from doing the research that we can get these signatures without even talking to one Republican. And that's what really got me excited. And I don't think people analyzed the district in quite the way you did. I think people were just stepping back and saying it's a Republican district. It's hopeless to do anything there. I mean, that's the impression I got at the time, Randy. What was that? I didn't catch that last part. Just said it that you analyzed it in a way that other Democrats didn't. I mean, I, I see that. They just looked at it as a Republican district as sort of hopeless and right. – uh, also, you know, they were, I think some of them were disturbed by the idea of even running against Russell Pierce because he was so powerful and they thought he might use his power to do even worse things. Um, but you were ready to take him on and you found, you found where the power was and you found a strategy that you could actually defeat, um, the Senate, uh, uh, leader and it worked. And you had yep. to pull in. You started out with Democrats and independents, but that wouldn't get re- get him recalls, would it? You'd need a lot of Republicans. Yep, absolutely. It was it was a multi pronged strategy, and I just knew on the front end of it we needed heavy Democratic involvement, and then the, on the back end of it we needed the Republicans to take ownership of something that they wouldn't typically do. Um, and then and then at the same time, it's it's interesting because as we were doing this. There was already an undercurrent because no part and every single party was Democrat or Republican. There's always factions. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't know the extent to was there was an anti-Pierce faction already, already brewing, already, already being cultivated in 2010 because there's a lot of Mormons who did not like SB 1070 or who lived in Mesa, but they were just they were in the minority. 
we just didn't hear about them because there was this minority, a significant minority, I would say upwards of maybe 25 or 30 percent, right? Which means, you know, still means Russell Pierce gets elected because the Democrats are going to vote for the Democrat in a regular election and Republicans still vote. But even holding their nose for the Republican or they'll do a protest vote. So that was, that was the dynamics, but no one knew about that because no one actually pushed or looked in to see what was going on there, right? And so even, even myself, just applying what I knew as an organizer, within, the, within you know, a few weeks of us, even before we even actually submitted the paperwork, I was able to contact by doing one-on-ones and talking to some of the other leaders in, in Mesa. I was able, had, a, had a conversation with a woman named Beth Farnsworth, on Beth Coons, who's part of the uh, bigger Farnsworth family, a very prominent uh, Republican Mormon family out in East Mesa. And I had a conversation with her, and I asked her, would you be willing, if we ever get this to be a candidate, to take on Russell Pierce? And she said, yes. And she said, if not me, I'll, find, I'll help you find someone else. So, again, I didn't that, – that was out there. So all these pieces were there. There's just no one committed to doing that. And one of the reasons is because, like, say the Democratic Party as an institution, they're all they, all they care about and all their interest is, and they even, they even swear a pledge to this, is to identify, recruit, and help elect Democrats often. So any strategy outside that framework doesn't make sense to them. But for me, it was about how do we, I, I looked at them, how do we stop the pain and suffering of, an, of a vulnerable immigrant community? So once you do that, it's not about electing Democrat or Republican, it's about like, what's the right strategy? Who's causing that pain? Who's driving that agenda? And for me, it was very clear as Russell Pierce. And that, and that if we take him out, things will definitely change. And they did. Because in a matter of just us removing him from office, we went from ground zero from the fight against, you know, anti-immigrant legislation to zero tolerance. In the last decade, there's been no bill similar to SB 1070 that's passed that legislature. Imagine that, right? Even though Republicans still controlled every single major office in the legislature, there's been no bill. So that, that's, how, that's how powerful that message was, right? Because in the whole history of Arizona, there's never been a recall of an elected official at the level that we did with, with uh, Senate President Pierce. And I don't think in the country there's been a um, um, recall of, a, of the president of a Senate, a state Senate. Had there? I mean, it was a really a different yeah. thing you did. Yes. Yes, it was definitely a David versus Goliath situation. But in my mind, this is what's interesting. In my mind, because of my organizing training and experience, it was so it was so achievable. It was just right. That I knew. I just felt like it was like this is something to do, but. Not just because I had this feelings, but I, I did the research, I looked at what's happening, and then I said, this is so doable, because I said, even, I said, even if we were just able, even if we didn't refine a Republican candidate, if we could just recall him, that would be a black eye and stand on his record, so that was something I feel like almost surely we could do that part, get those signatures. And it, but, but people thought I was crazy. I was the one that thought Russell Pierce was crazy. So it was interesting. <laughs> I'm trying to do this work. But people in the prayer think I'm the crazy one. I'm like, no, he's the crazy one. He's the one that's coming after the people we care about. So, because Russell Pierce was not just anti-immigrant. He was anti-union, anti-woman, anti-labor, anti-worker, anti-public education, anti-constitution. I can go on and on. Um, and so like that's what whole, we're dealing with. Kind of like the whole Republican Party today. Um, you, you wrote in the book uh, that uh, one of the things that stood out to me was that um, two out of three uh, people, voters in uh, Pierce's district, didn't even know who he was. Absolutely. And I, that, really, that really stuck with me because my experience in, in uh, canvassing and going door-to-door, gathering signatures, I've worked one day for, for the recall effort, is is that how many people simply don't care about politics 
or are so misinformed or uninformed about candidates. Some some are hostile. Um, you you just you know I, I just wonder how we got to this point. You have any thoughts on that? Yeah, that's a very good point. And just so you know, people need to know too. We 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 found that out again before we filed a signature. So we knew before we filed that two out of three of our folks that we were targeting for signatures knew very little about Russell Pierce. So they weren't like staunch, you know. They weren't anti-immigrant or, or pro sb 10 or anti sb 10 They didn't really know what's going on. And the re- one of the reasons for that is because, especially in the safe, like even if it's a blue seat or a safe red seat, there's no incentive for Democrats to talk to Democrats in that seat. They just don't even go there. And so all the messaging goes to those Republicans that turn out for the primary to elect the person, and then the general election seems to be such a safe seat. There's no, you don't have to, you don't have to campaign. It's over, right? So all that, all the, in a, in a safe blue seat and a safe red seat, all the activity occurs during the primary. So there's no reason to talk to Democrats or independents in the primary because they don't participate. So these folks that we were talking to about SP 107 and Russell Pierce, they haven't been spoken to in decades. <laughs> they were shocked that we were coming to the door. Because the Democratic Party had no reason to be there, right, in the past. Because it, was, it, didn't, fulfill, it didn't fulfill their agenda. I would argue differently, saying in Democrats that are in very safe red seats, you need them for the bigger agenda. You need them for the statewide voting. You need them for a countywide vote. So I would, I, would, I, would, I would view it as an opportunity. I think that's what Ken saw. Ken saw as an opportunity to talk to voters that they traditionally do not talk to who are members of the Democratic Party. They just don't get talked to because there's, no, there's, not, there's nothing in play in that district. That's kind of why a lot of those folks are the way they are. Um, and it's just a lack of that to reach out. And then when we start talking to them, of course, it's a different dynamic. You start creating a different experience for them so they actually want to get involved in politics. Because you had a good story about what was going on. And and I found the same thing in canvassing. People didn't uh, – we canvassing Democrats. They didn't know who our, um, our state congresswoman was. They had never heard right. of her. You know, right. and it was shot. You, you're, you're voting Democratic, everything, and you don't even know who our congresswoman is. And yep. but that was that was that's out there. And I I, I found the same thing that you're talking about. Yeah. One, it, it, one it, the, it's, go ahead. One of the things that, that uh, I think uh, that I found uh, is that, uh, you know, as part of the recall kind of pointed it out, is that. If you had something to talk about other than partisan politics, if you're talking about policies or or Pierce's transgressions or mm-hmm. or our pile, you could you could have a conversation without the labels involved. You know, Absolutely. You, you, they were open to that. But once you if you had ever put out a label saying I'm a Democrat and I'm and I'm seeking, you know, uh, uh, signatures, it, it was you were more quickly turned off than if you just talked about the, the actual policies. Right. And we and like from the, in the book I also said like we did we basically asked him a very open ended question. Like we just said, how do you feel about Russell Pierce being president of the Senate? And so that's a very inviting question. It's not saying, you know, what we are, it's just asking them their opinion. And people like to give their opinions about things. And then they say, Well I never heard of him and that was our opening. Well, let me tell you about him. <laughs> And so, and of course, we didn't judge them for not knowing him. We didn't say, oh, how can you not know who he is? You're a Democrat. No, we just like, okay, great. Here he is. Now, can we, would you we want to sign this thing? Sure, thank you. So that's what, that's what, that was the opening, right, that we had that played to our benefit. So, I, 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 you know, this is a difficult question, but, um, you know, I was so struck by, by your plan and, and, and uh, strategy. How do we, how do we apply that kind of a strategy to, to politics today. 
Um, yeah, I, I think that's we're at a point, point, right. we're at a point where you. our democracy is in, in, yeah. at risk, and and uh, I think we we need some new strategies to uh, to get past uh, the tribalism. Right, I, I, that's a great question, and I think one of my biggest disappointments was that the strategies that we use and deployed in, in, in 2011 for the recall, and then 2012. Because, you know, Russell Pierce tried to run again, and we got involved in the primary. So we got Democrats and independents to actually participate in Republican primary. Um, and we defeated Russell Pierce in the Republican primary by double digits with a guy named Bob Worsley, another Republican. And we got Democrats to re-register as independents because independents can participate. And then we got the independents to request a vote by mail ballot. Then we helped them pick up their ballots and then turn them in and request a Republican ballot in the primary. So it was a very, very, very sophisticated strategy. We were able to make that happen, and we won by double digits, right? And so I think that's that's what this what, what disappoints me the most because Demo, the Democratic Party, if they work with other allies, they can take out some of these Republicans, replace them with some not a Democrat, another Republican, um, in a primary if they got engaged and, and would moderate they would moderate the legislature. Doesn't mean you can get everything you want, but it moderate it, and that's what they need to do. Someone like a Karen Fan or someone with, with the recall demonstrated that there has to be swift consequences for politicians that go. You know, you're not going to punish someone for being a Republican or being a Democrat. It's when they go too far, when they become too extreme. And Russell Pierce is too extreme, right? And so that's when we had to take him out of office. And so when other folks do that type of work, when they start doing the bidding of someone like Donald Trump, who's neither a Republican or a Democrat, he just is out there, he's a, he's a narcissistic mega guy. I mean, you just got, you got to take them out. You got to engage in those fights. You can't just say, oh, we're just going to do our Democratic thing. But I think that's, that's, the strategies are there to moderate the tone um, for any politician that's extreme. If, people can start to see that and start to galvanize and apply it. Yeah, we've re- uh, appealed uh, over and over to um, conservative Republicans to run against uh, Gosar in his uh, congressional district. And we're not looking for anybody liberal in that district. We're not even right. looking for a moderate Republican. We're looking for a conservative Republican to take on a guy who's really pretty much crazy, and right. even his family knows he's crazy and just looking for it. And, but when we try to do that, they say we can't get out of the Republican uh, primary. That's what they say to us. So do you have an answer for that? I, or oh, is yeah. It- no, I'm sorry. I, I thought I did explain. Yeah, we, we did that. We did that in 2012. We got involved. You have to get involved in the Republican primary. Yeah. So we did. We went to Democrats and said, look, when it gets to the general, you don't, your vote's not going to matter. So we need you to re-register the independent. So you can request a ballot in the primary. And that's what you got to do to go start. Get all those Democrats, and then you can kick his butt in the primary because all these other folks are coming into it that he's not expecting. So all these Democrats are going to use their power, not in the general, but in the Republican primary, just by re-registering as independent. And then once you become independent, all you do is say, all right, we'll crush your ballot for a Republican primary. Boom. Yeah, I can't imagine the Democratic Party as, as a party agreeing to that strategy. Yeah, I, and that's the problem, right? Because about so the goal is what there's different goals, right? So your goal is like how do you defeat Gosar? That's one objective. Their goal is how do you defeat Gosar with a Democrat? Those are two different strategies. It, it seems that the Republicans, uh, to some extent, have have adopted your uh, strategy because as I've gone in Arizona and in Minnesota and rural areas, when I've gone door to door. Uh, you know, prior to the election or trying to get signatures, I find that, that those that are labeled independent are overwhelmingly uh, right-wing 
uh, Republicans. And mm-hmm. so I, I fear a lot of those people are doing what you suggest in reverse and are, are voting in Democratic um, primaries and, and trying to right. you know, create some chaos. Yeah, this is why our democracy is so out of tilt right now, because all of the action, I think like somewhere like 80-some percent of these congressional seats are all, they're all safe seats, either safe Republican or safe Democrat. What that means is that all the election activity, all the action, all the power is being decided in the primary and not the general. So that means that if you're in one of those types of districts, you got to get involved in the primary. <laughs> so you get to decide what type of Republican you want, because you're not going to, you know, or you can decide what type of Democrat you want. If you're in a safe Democrat seat, that's but no one no one has that message right now because it doesn't it doesn't speak to the party's interest. I agree. I think um, that's that's absolutely true, and uh, I don't have a have a good solution to it. But but I think your analysis was just practical, and you did what you could do. You didn't do some some big idealistic thing that that couldn't be reached. All right, we're now in the era of Trump where. Anti-immigration feeling is powerful all over the country. He's helped gin it up, but it's not just the United States. If you look at France or Germany or, or even Sweden and Australia, uh, the anti-immigrant feeling has gotten more intense in the 10 years since you worked on SB 1070 when I think most Arizona Republicans were pretty moderate about immigration. Right. I would think now a lot of them are absolutist in terms of opposing immigration. What can we do? I just think you have to you have to be going offensive. You have to start, you know, pushing out different ideas, you know, broadening your law, broadening the thoughts. For example, in areas of voting rights, right, when they started restricting it, you had to call for an expansion, right? New York City just passed a law that allows legal residents the right to vote in local elections. That, you got to really because you got to you got to call the question: What is it about people who live here, who pay taxes? What is it about them voting that bothers you? You got to put it in their face. You got to make it public. You got to do a public campaign about it. And you have to go back to the founding of this country. We have people who are foreigners voting, you know, who fighting for the right to vote when they when they form this country. It's about taxation without representation. And people don't even know this. During the colonial period, French Huguenots used to vote in the South Carolina Assembly election. French Huguenots. Who would have thought that? They don't know. That's like 1704 because we don't know our history about voting. We don't know our history that it was about voting was about uh, uh, recognizing people's dignity and allowing them to have a say in their government, regardless of their status. You breathe, you vote. I mean, that whole message, you know, I can never see a Democrat saying that you breathe, you vote. They're too scared to be, to be talking about, oh, you'll be open borders. There's no, it's about taxation, no taxation without representation. Those who, who are, you know, you go to make someone who's undocumented, goes buy gas, they just put some money into the federal um, roads highway program. They go buy food, they put money, I mean, they pay, they pay the rent in a place, they're paying property taxes. So this whole notion that folks aren't, they're not earning their, they're not paying their way is just not, not founded. So we need, we need a campaign, we need people out there pushing different ideas so people can see the absurdity of what the Republicans are doing. This whole notion that this isn't just some, some special sacred thing that's, the, that, that, that's given by God and so, and so limited. If you give one person citizenship, you can't, you're not going to be able to give someone else. Like, give me a break. Citizenship's not like a dollar bill. If you spend a dollar bill, you don't have it. If you give someone citizenship, you give five other people citizenship. It doesn't, doesn't diminish you. And so it's, it's just a lack of really presenting ideas and frameworks that people can see the absurdity and stupidity of what's out there. And then putting a campaign behind that, making demands on a politician that we're not going back. We're not going to let you cower. You need to stand up and be stronger now. 
not 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 start retreating and say, oh, look what the Republicans are doing. No, we got to out organize them. And I, I look at if we cannot organize the people like with Trump's you know, getting involved in, shame on us. Because when I look at them and see what they're about, it, there's, I'd be more than happy to take that fight on. So many of these policies from, from the Republicans now you know, through uh, Trumpism are just overly cool. I mean, like, like Pierce and Arpaio, they were avowed racists. They were open racists right. and, and were proud of it. Um, and I don't think most Americans are cruel. And, right. and so I think, you know, as I was sitting at a county fair this, uh, this summer with a uh, Democratic booth and being yelled at and spit on by, by Republicans passing by and, and being treated to their ignorance, um, it, it occurred to me that, that maybe we shouldn't put up a Democratic booth. Maybe we should put up a booth uh, that is just about reason, you know, that that could just somehow draw people in to, to have uh, discussions. Because I think the people themselves don't really, aren't cruel to their neighbors, they aren't cruel to others, um, but the policies are. Yeah, I, I, would, I would be hesitant to, to take down signs about Democrats. You don't want to give in to that hatred, right? You want to be able to stand your ground in some ways and say, look, this is a battle of ideas, and we can win the battle of ideas. But we Democrats got to rethink their tactics and rethink their strategies. You can't not, when the whole ground shifted around, you can't keep doing the same thing. You got to get more creative. You got to be more engaging. And you have to invite more people into the process. And I think that's what happens is that I don't think Democrats sometimes see all the change happening around them, and they're too late to adjust their strategy to meet the challenge. That happened with SB 1070. They waited too long to get to take on that fight. And let Russell Pierce get too much steam. They didn't realize that, you know, Dan Napolitano, the backstop that was no longer there. Because she would have vetoed it. But she had, she, in 2009, she became Secretary of Homeland Security. So then what's your plan to stop anti-immigrant stuff? Right? You have to get engaged earlier. And I think they were just kind of laying back, saying, oh, someone else, someone else will come along and stop this. Or the business community will step up. Well, then who was going to do that work in 2010 or 2009? So that's what I'm talking about right now. It's really... Democrats got to redefine what does it mean now to be to be to be in the era of Trump and taking them on, right? And I think you know, for some point, you know, we we, we defeated him recently, but now it's about you know, he's not done, and so we can't just you know. Sometimes what we do, we kind of we win the election, then we step back. All right, things again will be okay, but we have to ramp up our efforts, right? Because you know, Trump didn't go away; he's now organizing locally and statewide in these places to try to get a pathway back to the White House, whether it's legitimate or illegitimate, putting people in place. Is our Secretary of State so that that will actually do what he wants them to do? And so we have to make sure that doesn't happen. We're about out of time, so so even forty five minutes goes um, goes by really really quickly. Um, I think we're talking to one of the the best organizers and more original minds in terms of political tactics. And, and Randy Perez, we're really thankful you were with us today. Um, we'd like to to thank our supporters um, out there. A democratic perspective needs your economic support. We have lost uh, two of our largest contributors, and we would really like that. Um, all our shows, including Randy's 2010 show, our, our 2012 show, are available as podcasts, either on our uh, website, www.org, uh, or on iTunes or some of these other uh, uh, people who, who kind of, what they do is they grab your your, your um 
program and then they charge people for it. Um, I'd like to think Democrats of the Red Rocks, um, their uh, uh, website is a great place to go and look and see what's going on in Sedona. They're deeply involved now in the fight for representation and how um, Sedona, in one of the the uh, I'm kind of inarticulate today is divided between two different uh, districts. So get involved in the in the in the fight to get a fairness for our area in terms of representation and not divide Sedona. To Democratic Perspective, brought to you by the Verde Valley Independent Democrats, a weekly talk show focusing on the political issues facing the Verde Valley, Sedona, Northern Arizona, and our nation at large. Catch us every Monday morning after the 8 a.m. news, right here on AM 780 KAZM. It's beautiful out there, folks. Have a great day.